Last week we began a series entitled The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this series we're just going to, for many of us, be reminded of things that we already know. Peter tells, as he writes his epistle, he says, I'm writing things to you just by way of reminder. These are things that you know, but we need reminders, don't we? We're coming to the Lord's table this morning, and it is our privilege to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and the bread and the cup. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to this series on the gospel, these are, again, for many of us, things that we're just being reminded of, and we need that. We desperately need that because as we look upon Christ, Paul says we're being transformed and we are more and more being made like him. And so that's one of the goals of this series is that we will see the glory of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, and that we will become more like him and walk worthy of this gospel to which we have been called. But today I wanted to look at Jude 3 here, and here is a call that is given to believers to contend for the gospel. So I thought it would be good as we are just beginning this series to speak about this call, the importance of contending for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude 3 is uh, a call to do that. Jude is the author of this little epistle. It's one of the shortest in the Bible and I think uh, of the New Testament as well. And uh, it is here that he exhorts us to contend. Who is this Jude? Well, he is referred to as the brother of James. James was well known uh, probably for Jude just to mention James um, as uh, his brother is a reminder of the James that everybody knew, who was the, one of the first great leaders in the early church. We find him in Acts 15. He's uh, a preeminent person there in the Jerusalem council. And uh, he is the brother of this James. Well, who was that James? Well, he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. There were other children that Mary had after the virgin birth. She and Joseph were married. She had other children. They are mentioned to us in Matthew 13. There was James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude, as well as sisters. Um, And these, it appears, became believers not until after the resurrection of Christ or sometime therein. But we find them mentioned, we find Jude mentioned in Acts chapter 1. He was with the apostles there on the day of Pentecost. And so Jude is a half-brother of Jesus Christ, but notice he doesn't say that. He, he just says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I think we sense his humility as he, as he begins this letter. And there is a wonderful um, introduction or salutation to those who are, who are called. They are sanctified by God the Father. They are preserved in Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for his people. Sanctify them, set them apart, and they are preserved in Jesus Christ. And then the, the typical heading, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, who is he writing to? This is referred to often as just a general epistle. We don't know a specific church. It may have been a circular letter that had been written and passed along to other churches. 
but it was dealing with a need of this time. This was probably written in the late 60s A.D., and uh, he says, I was going to write to you concerning this common salvation that we have. And that is true. If we're a believer, we, we partake of a common salvation. Every believer, whether they live in Africa or the Middle East or here in America, we partake of a common salvation. There's not a different means of salvation. It is a common salvation that we all enjoy. And it appears that he wanted to say many things concerning this common salvation, but for other reasons he is led to speak about something different here. And that is the need to contend for the gospel, earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. He speaks about this faith, the faith. It's not about our personal faith, but it is about the faith, which is another way of saying the gospel, the truths that have been given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his apostles. Sometimes in the New Testament, this is referred to many times in this way. Rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the faith, the faith that has been handed down, or the apostles' doctrine, or the sound doctrine. So here it is speaking about this authoritative body of truth that has been given to us by Christ through his apostles, and he is calling for them to contend for this truth, contend for this gospel that they have received. And they've received it. This gospel has come to us once for all. There's a sense of a finality here. You know, in the Old Testament, we have progressive revelation. And with the coming of Christ, God has spoken to us in his son in these last days. And we have this final once for all uh, gospel and truth that has been handed down to us, has been inscripturated in the word of God. And so there's a finality about it. We don't look for something new, some kind of a a new uh, teaching or the rest of the story. We have it all in the faith that has been handed down to us. Someone said, doctrine that is new is not true. And doctrine that is true is not new. And that is very true, I believe. But he says, I am writing to you. I found it necessary to write to you. I I felt compelled. It was impressed upon him. This was an urgent matter because the gospel is of supreme importance. We talked about that last week. It is of utmost importance, and therefore it needs to be guarded. It needs to be protected, and that's what Jude is doing. I felt compelled to to write to you, not about this. some of the things I was going to write to you about, but I wanted to write to you and exhort you and exhort you to contend for this faith. Contend is a word that suggests that there is opposition that there are those who are attacking it, that it is in some way being threatened and undermined and being challenged. And the word that is used here by Jude, this Greek word to contend, is a word that it comes from the word to agonize. And it has the idea of fighting for something, just as a, in, in a sport, in an athletic competition, there is agonizing, there is struggle and It's also a word that would be used in regards to warfare. So it's a very strong word, 
I contend that we need to contend for the faith. And the word that he uses here, it's intensified. And it's brought out in the New King James, and, and, and it uses the word earnestly. You are to contend. You need to contend, contend earnestly for the faith. Now, note here who is to contend. He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. It's been given to the saints. And so this is a call not just for pastors, for elders, for seminary professors. This is a call to the church. It's a call to all of us that we need to be a people who contend for this faith as believers. Paul said, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me, and yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I, I, I am called to preach that gospel, and woe to me if I don't. So he recognized the need for himself. But Peter says that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. So it's not just for the Apostle Paul. It's not just for pastors, elders. It is for all of us to be those who contend earnestly, who agonize to to contend for the faith, contend for the gospel. Now, secondly, this morning, some reasons, some reasons to contend for this gospel. Notice verse 4. For, this is the reason I'm writing these things, Jude says, for certain men have crept in. They've crept into the church unnoticed. They crept in unnoticed, who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. And notice what kind of men they are. They are ungodly men. And they turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week that this gospel that we read about in the Bible, that we preach, that we love, is the gospel that is saturated with grace. It is all of grace. That's what we glory in, isn't it? From beginning to end, it is all of grace. But here are these false teachers that are coming in, these men that have crept into the church. And what are they doing? They turn the grace of God into something that is lewd, perverted. And we see this even in our own day, don't we? Many churches and many pulpits that turn the grace of God into lewdness, perversion. And it was true in the first century as well. These false teachers, he says they're dreamers. They are those who are boasting in their special revelation that they have, like they have special insights. But it's contrary to the gospel. They are those who defile their flesh, their sexual immorality. And so here is this warning now and this call to contend because of those who have crept into the church. Paul himself referred to this when he met for the last time with the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20. We read there, Paul, as he is sounding a warning there, 
he says, know this, that after my departure, that there will be those men who will rise up and from among you who will speak perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Wow. Paul says, from within the church, there are going to be those who are going to show themselves to be false teachers, and they will lead people away from the truth into perverse things. Jesus spoke about this as well, didn't he? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You, know, you will know them by their fruits. And what we find is even before the apostles have passed off the scene, there's already error that is coming into the church, false teachers that are coming in, and they are perverting the gospel of the grace of God. And so these warnings are, are sounded here, and Jude says, we must be those that contend for the faith. Turn, if you will, to Galatians 1. I think this is familiar to all of us, but I think it would be good to read this and see this, Galatians chapter 1. And here is another book that is written uh, for that very purpose. The gospel is being twisted. It's being perverted. And so Paul is writing to correct this. He had gone to Galatia and wrote, had, had preached the gospel in these various churches that were planted. And, and now they're, many of them are, have been turning away. They've been led away by false teachers. And notice the strong words that he speaks with. Verse, chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. Notice to a different gospel, to a different gospel, which is not another. It's not another gospel. There's only one gospel, but they're turning you away to another gospel that is a different gospel. It's not, not, it's not gospel at all which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. You you don't have to guess what Paul's thoughts are here. He's pretty strong. He's very bold in his language. Let them be anathema. Chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. I preached in such a way, I painted a picture for you of Jesus Christ and who he is and his work and his crucifixion, what he did for his people. And now you've been bewitched, you've been drawn away. And so even the early churches were struggling with this. Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may change, uh, charge some that teach, uh, that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies which cause disputes, rather than godly edification which is in faith contrary. This is contrary, he says, to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
They are perverting it. They are turning people away from it. Timothy, you need to guard the truth. There are many exhortations that are given to to him, as well as we find in Titus. There are those many who are insubordinate. They're both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and disqualified for every good And you know, this has been true throughout the whole history of the church. Where the light of the gospel has come, it it is always going to be under attack. And therefore, it needs to be contended for. And it's no different in our own day, is it? For people that are as old as I am or older, we have seen in our lifetime such changes among those who were formerly gospel-preaching churches that have turned the grace of God into lewdness, as Jude says. And we are called in our own generation to be those who contend. One of the reasons is because often false teachers are found within even the professing church. A second reason that we must contend is because we live in an ungodly world, an ungodly culture, a culture that hates God. The natural man doesn't receive the things of of the Spirit of God, and there's enmity in his heart towards God and towards his people. Jesus said this in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you identify with Christ, you're united to Christ, And his gospel, even as Christ was hated, he says, you can expect the same. They're not going to accept you. They're not going to love you. They're going to oppose you, and they are even going to hate you because of this message. And last week we saw that the message of the cross is to the world. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And especially the claims of the exclusivity of the gospel is something that is is hated by the world around us. It's okay if you accept everybody. They can have their own ideas and their own truth claims. But if you say there's only one truth, you're going to be hated. I was reading this week about R.C. Sproul when he was a freshman in an English class. His professor was openly opposed to Christianity and very hostile to it. And one day in the middle of the class, the teacher said to him, Mr. Sproul, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? He said, I gasped, and uh, I finally said, yes, I do. To which the professor said, that's the most narrow-minded, bigoted, and arrogant statement I have ever heard. You must be a supreme egotist to believe that your way of religion is the only way. You know, we're living in an age where, again, it is the same. Um, He is with the Lord now, but things continue as they did in his earlier uh, uh, years. 
And we live in a, as Paul says to the Philippians, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation that hates God. There is enmity in their hearts toward God and therefore against Christ and against the gospel. Colossians, Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So what can we expect in the academic world, in the political world, just on street level? There's going to be opposition to Christ, to his church, to the gospel. And uh, we, too, will be considered to be narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, because we believe that the gospel is the one true and only gospel. There is only one God. There is only one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for that reason, Jude says, we need to contend. And Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. And be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables." So there are false teachers within the church. There's the world that opposes the gospel. And then there's one other that we'd like to consider, and it is this. There are spiritual forces that are at work in high places. Things that we cannot see going on in a spiritual realm that we can't see. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day in John 8, You are of your father the devil. You are of your father, the devil, uh, your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Christ hating adversary. He is the liar. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And here Paul speaks about this gospel that he preaches. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He is one who is um, given the call to preach that gospel. And he says in chapter 4, verse 2, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, Not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, notice this, whose minds the God of this world has blinded. The God of this world has blinded, that is Satan, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This great adversary seeks to blind the eyes of men so that they do not see the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ. 
Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and their end will correspond to their deeds. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is, as we think about the world in which we live, false teachers, there is behind all of this, this power, this spiritual power in high places that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, Jude calls us, Paul calls for us to contend against these false teachers, to contend against an ungodly culture, and contend against those who oppose the gospel and satanic powers. Preach the word. Be faithful to the gospel. And just in closing this morning, what's the motivation? What's the motivation to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, if you're in Jude, verse 1, Jude says this. As he writes to this, his audience, he says, To those who are called, who are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, God has graced us if we are Christian. If we are in Christ, he has called us to himself. This is an effectual call. He has brought us to himself. He has set us apart unto himself to be his own special people. And we are being preserved in Jesus Christ. God has been gracious. He has been merciful to us. And therefore, what is it that drives, what, it, what is it that motivated Jude? What was it that motivated Paul? What is it that should motivate us? Is it not love to Christ for who he is, for the beauty of Christ? Peter, as he wrote to the believers in his first epistle, he said, to, those, uh, to, to you who believe, he is precious. The Lord Jesus Christ is precious precious. Imagine someone speaking about your spouse in an, in an awful way, speaking lies about your spouse, saying things that are not true, demeaning them. Would you not contend out of love for your spouse, contend for their reputation? And so it is for us, is it not? To those who believe he is precious, we have come to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do not want to hear him demeaned, his work demeaned, him to be uh, spoken ill of. And so we have been purchased, as Paul says, with precious blood, and we should desire that the beauty And the glory of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our King, that it would be contended for, that we would stand for the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be honored. As we think about this mission that we are 
given, that we are to be ambassadors of Christ. We are to contend for this gospel in love. We are to speak the truth, of course. But as we think about this mission, and we look at the opposition that there is in the world around us and spiritual forces that we can't even see, and even corruption that comes from within many professing churches, we might think, what hope is there? But as we close, I want you to be encouraged to know this, that Jesus will not fail in his mission. His gospel will accomplish its good purpose, its intended purpose. In John 1, uh, 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. So as we go, we go and preach and contend for the gospel, knowing that God's word will not fail. Christ's mission will not fail. His sheep will hear his voice. His sheep will hear his voice, and they will come and they will follow him. And so we are thankful that, that Christ will not fail in this mission. And as we contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that ultimately it will prevail. And in that hope, uh, we endeavor to contend and to preach the gospel. It's our privilege today to come to the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I invite you to take your insert. And Paul says that as believers, that we partake of the cup of fellowship that has been poured out for us, that speaks about the riches of God's grace to us, Jesus is one who drank the bitter cup of the wrath of God for us. You remember Jesus praying in the garden, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. What was that cup? It was the cup of judgment and of wrath and condemnation that was due to us because of our sin. But Jesus will take that cup and he will drink it down to its bitter dregs. He drank that cup so that we might be given the cup of communion, of fellowship, of blessing that is overflowing to us. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table, we'll sing this hymn, the cup of blessing. And on the last verse, I'll ask those that are serving if they'll come forward. This is to a familiar tune to us. I think uh, we'll pick it up um, as we sing. So let's stand together as we sing.